Look, let's take a quick moment. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend, and I think it's important for us to just take a moment and uh, maybe just a few seconds of, of, of silence to just honor. We know that Memorial Day is not just about cookouts and hot dogs and hamburgers and all of that. And, of course, the beginning of summer, we know what it really is about is our gratitude regarding those who have given their lives for us to be free, to enjoy what we're enjoying. And so can we just do that just for a few moments? Let's just take a moment of reflection to honor those who've done, given their lives. Lord, I'm grateful, Lord, for our nation. Lord, there are those who do not understand, but Lord, your word tells us, God, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Lord, blood is something precious. It's life. Life is in the blood. Lord, and for those to give their lives in the way they have, God, for a nation in the various ways, God, to protect us. Lord, I thank you for, for that. And Lord, for the privilege of living in a nation, God, where we do have, Lord, those who will rise up in a volunteer status in most cases, Lord, to serve, to serve the way they do. Lord, we're grateful for, Lord, for those who are even serving now. God, we ask you to bless them and protect them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in week five of our series called What Happened Next? And um, so tonight's message title is A Call to Persevere, A Call to Persevere. And I uh, encourage you, if you've missed, thank you, sweetie, if, if you've missed any part of the series, you're welcome to go and archive all of those so we can put it all together for you. And uh, so we're doing a study in the book of Hebrews as we're thinking in terms of how we're preparing our hearts. And we're taking the example or the illustration uh, from the book of, of Hebrews, this group of, of those who have been wavering in their faith and, and extracting encouragement, extracting the exhortation to help us stay focused. And that's what we've learned. This is what the writer of Hebrews has said. Stay focused, keep your eye on Jesus. To believe in the work of Jesus. To continue to walk in belief. To rest from all of our work because he rested. He has purchased for us rest. So we no longer have to earn our salvation. We don't have to. Jesus, as the perfect priest, has gone before us. After making provision, he sat down. And so our work is to believe. Our work is to be that living sacrifice, to serve him out of reverence, of course, out, but out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Last week, we learned about the covenants and why the covenants are so important. God reaching for us, fixing our problem through these wonderful covenants, coming and doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. So we have entered into this new covenant since the time and, and Christ rising from the dead, call the covenant of grace. And his grace is there. And it's, as the writer said, we can come boldly before his throne of grace when in, in ever our time of need. So now the writer in the rest of chapter 10 is going to encourage us to persevere. So let's, let's dig into what he shares in the, the second half of, of Hebrews chapter 10 and, and what we can do to, to walk in that, to embrace it. Hebrews 10, 19 through uh, 23 to start here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. He's established that. We have confidence. So he's saying, since we do, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is Jesus. He's, he's, again, using the imagery of the curtain that separated us from God, that Jesus, by his body that represented that, has been removed because of what Jesus did for us. Now we can come before him boldly into the Holy of Holies, enjoy his presence, enjoy his favor. And since we have a great priest over the house of God who is forever in, the, in, in that seat, in the, in the position like Melchizedek, forever offering intercession on our behalf. Verse 22, let us draw near to God. Since that is all true, let us draw near to him. If the, if the place has been prepared, let's draw near. Let's draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. He throws this word in there, sincere, and he is going to define that here in the next few verses as we break it apart. But a sincere heart with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We learned that last week, that the old covenant had no power to really truly transform us. It made provision for our sin, but it did not change us. It did not change us on the end. It, it could not take care of the real guilt and shame of sin. However, the blood of Jesus does. And we can pull our full assurance of knowing that our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Christ to cleanse us from that guilty conscience, the effect of sin, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who, uh, he, for he who promised is faithful. Again, the imagery, all from the sacrifice of the sprinkling of the blood, the cleansing, the sprinkling of the water to cleanse the ceremonially, the offering, so that it would be perfect. It would be cleansed. We are now that living sacrifice, having been purified by the blood of Jesus, purified by the sprinkling of the ceremonial water there in the, the cast, uh, our, our cast golden sea that was used for the washing of the priests and of the sacrifices. So that's us. That's us. So he's saying, look, since what he did for us, let us then come, not only boldly, but with a sincere heart. I love this because he speaks of the intimacy of this relationship that has been bought for us. Goes beyond just marching right up to him and demanding or, or whatever, but it, there, there is a place of intimacy that's been purchased for us too, to draw near to him, draw near to him by the spirit of God. But let's start with this. What causes us to stumble? Because the writer here is speaking this. He's encouraging them because he knows they're stumbling. He says, look, you know, because he's done all this, this is what I want you to do. But he's, 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 he's connecting to the, the reality that they've been stumbling, that they haven't been drawing near, that they have not been, have, they don't have the confidence. Why don't they have the confidence? Uh, confidence? Well, I've written down some things that, that I've observed, things that we see in scripture, things that I think do hold us back from being able to have the confidence of God. Let's take a look at some of these. So what causes us to stumble? Number one, we lose hope. We lose hope. We lose sight of a solution. Why do we lose hope? Well, we lose sight of a solution. We're living our lives and we're asking God for something. And, and because of the veil that can come over our eyes, we lack the creativity because we panic. And panic absolutely causes all creativity to fly out the window. 
it causes us to, to run the opposite direction rather than to come boldly before his throne of grace. And this is what happens. We lose hope. It's what causes us to panic and causes us to kind of forget what it is that Jesus, you know, the, the, the writer of Psalms says, forget not all of his benefits. Forget not. So we have to remind ourselves on a regular basis what it is that is available to us there at the cross, there in the presence of God. So the loss of hope can do that. The loss of, again, a solution, an answer to prayer, a need met or a passion unfulfilled. So that can cause us to lose hope. And hope, again, can paralyze. Another thing that, that uh, often, often can cause us to stumble is we take matters into our own hands. As a re- result of losing hope, we can start taking matters into our own hands. Rather than stop, you know, and just, okay, take an assessment. Lord, you are on the throne. You've done it before. You can do it again. Lord, I know what it says in Scripture. I'm believing that. I'm applying it to my life. And so, but a lot of times we bail out too quickly. We panic. And so not only we just do we lose hope, but we take matters into our own hands. And this is, this is something I see quite a bit of. And even in my own life, of course, the temptation to do that. And there, there is that, that uh, statement that is not biblical at all. But I remember uh, somebody told me this many years ago and thinking they were giving me godly advice. And it says, you know, that old s- statement of God helps those who help themselves. And it's just not true. <laughs> God helps those who look to him. God helps those who humble themselves under his mighty hand and wait for him. And so a lot of times that, that, that whole statement causes us to think that, well, if God's not going to show up, I'm going to go ahead and do something. I'm going to go ahead and force this issue. I'm going to make my dream come true. If he's not going to make this happen for me now, then I'm going to make it happen now. And a lot of times as a result of that, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. And so that's how we stumble. That's how we, we don't come into that wonderful presence. We lose hope. We take matters into our own hands. Thirdly, we let our hearts become embittered. Maybe we become angry at God. Maybe we're frustrated and, uh, or we're frustrated with people. You know, bitterness, of course, can have its application and, and, and it can come up in our life anywhere. But I'm telling you, folks, nothing shuts down the cycle of forgiveness in your life faster than unforgiveness and that giving birth to bitterness. And what is bitterness? Well, the Bible calls it a root. And, and matter of fact, in, in all the years that I've counseled, I got to tell you, very few people, when I've pointed out to them, you know, I think you've got a problem with bitterness. Very few people were able to recognize it. I mean, more often than not, people say, I'm not bitter. What are you talking about? Matter of fact, they almost saw it as an offensive, you know, statement on my part. But that's exactly the nature of bitterness is it often it is. It has, it's unforgiveness that has been so ignored and has been so allowed to grow deep, deep into our subconscious that, and we don't even realize how much of our life is, is a response to it, is an action to it. It is a defense of it. We don't even really know how bad it's gotten. But that's what can cause us to stumble. That's what can cause us to forfeit the grace that could be ours. And so, look, losing hope is something we all do. Taking matters into our hands is something we all tend to do. But this bitterness thing, we can't afford to do. Not even one one millisecond. Not even one millisecond. Because of what it does. Now, the writer's going to tell us what that brings here in just a moment. So I'm just setting the stage for it. But bitterness, as a whole, folks, 
is it flies completely in the face of what Jesus did, okay? For us to hold on to any offense or to blame anyone in the face of what great forgiveness we have received, see? So we know Jesus talked about that. He said, now freely, you know, you've, you've received, now freely give. The grace has been, I mean, what Jesus did for you there on the cross was, is limitless. It's, it's, it's beyond our ability to fathom. But for us to hold on from, you know, to hold anybody in contempt, to hold anyone, uh, you know, to, to be bitter at anyone who's walking in thoughtlessness or unkind words or, or abusiveness, whatever it might be, I mean, certainly I understand. But we cannot walk in that unforgiveness and bitter, embittered state because, again, It'll cause us to stumble, and we'll fall short of being able to receive the grace. Often in our life, if we're not finding answers to prayer, if we're not experiencing the kind of grace that Jesus talked about flowing like a fountain, the joy and the peace and all the fruit of the Spirit, what we often can find is that bitterness is, is, the, is the reason. And so we cannot let that happen, that's for sure. Fourthly, we listen to the crafty lies of the enemy the sirens of the, the spiritual realm on earth that call to us every day. And so, you know what I'm talking about is, is just those, those lies that we hear in the airways that we read on our, on our phone as we're looking at headlines. It is, it is the, the gossip, it is the complaining, it is the spirit of our age that is constantly speaking to distract the, the people of God, to rob us, again, of the grace that could be ours. So we're in a, in a vulnerable place because perhaps we've lost a little bit of hope and now we're taking matters into our hands. We get a little desperate and so we're looking for a, a solution and of course the enemy's ready to give you one very, very quickly. Anything that is opposed to the ways in, in the will of God. And so we've got to guard our hearts from that. That's what can cause us to stumble as we get a hold of and, and uh, you know, I know you're, you're probably wanting examples, and I, I can give us plenty, but for the sake of time, you know, it's when we talk about listening to the lies, it's, it could be just somebody come alongside you and say, yeah, you know, you're, you're justified in holding on to that bitterness. Yeah, you should, you know, you should cut them off. You shouldn't talk to them anymore, you know, or to just, you know, continue to um, solidify that, that determination to, to not forgive. But it could be so many other things that cause us that, you know, to turn to alcohol or to turn to drugs or, you know, to turn to sex or to turn to many other things that can be that pansia, that, that thing that just makes us feel good. I mean, so many of the other passions that we have in this life that we can turn to to satisfy, you know, our physical needs. But as a result, we forfeit a wonderful opportunity for God to do something supernatural. Could come in the form of a credit card, going into debt to try to buy ourselves happiness. We know that's not a good idea. We know that instinctively it's not a good idea because, of course, the bills eventually have to be paid and, and then it's choking us and then it, it's a very practical way of showing that. So anyway, we can listen to the lies. We can listen to the, to the, to the ways of the world and it can draw us away, okay? And then fifthly, this is a big one. We fear holiness. We fear holiness. I've never really talked about this much, but I want to share that with you tonight. I think when we, when we think about holiness, we kind of withdraw from it. I think we're afraid of it. And, and the reason why is because it means what? It means change. 
It means it's going to get into our stuff. It's going to get into the habits of my life, the choices, the choices that are just more than the ones that are overt. It's going to be the things on the inside, the self-talk. It's the things that are going on and, you know, what we do with, again, with our passions. And and I'm just not talking about fantasy and whatnot, but I'm just talking about even our life path as a whole. You know, I was sharing with a brother the other day. I said, you know, when you bite into the kingdom of God, you can never go back. It gets inside you. It gets inside you. Isn't that right, Donnie? It gets inside you in such a way that every aspect of your life is now in a, is, a, is, a, is an avenue to find more of God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But the opposite of that, a lot of times when, when we fear being changed, then we're reluctant. And so we can then just kind of fall into the habit of just being religious. In other words, just going through the motions to placate or to satisfy people around us, even satisfy ourselves to try to convince ourselves that I'm changing, but we're not really, not really. Okay, so just going through the motions, you know, holding a Bible as as opposed to reading the Bible, right? Going to church as opposed to being the church. You know, being one who talks about prayer, but do we really pray? Someone who talks about a relationship with God, but do you really know him? Talk about the voice of God, but are you really listening to it? And so when we talk about holiness, you know, (laughs) it's funny. It could almost be like a curse word to some because we can withdraw from it so much. But let me get to my notes here. We think as, why do we we fear holiness? Because we think we're going to lose something. We think we're going to lose something. Lose our identity, our opportunity for joy and pleasure, big time. See this with young people all the time. When I begin to, to talk to them about better habits in life, and, and, and a lot of times, well, man, I, I don't know. And I'm often really surprised even at times at parents who when I even talk about how you would lead your children in a direction of holiness, how they say, well, you know, they got to learn. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> you know, they got to learn the hard way. No, they don't. You know, you don't. I always tell people, look, you don't learn from your mistakes. You really should learn from others' mistakes. That's a better idea. And the Bible's full of them, full of those who've made mistakes that we can look at and say, don't want to repeat what that guy did. And they're there for that purpose, absolutely there for that purpose. But we fear loss of of joy and pleasure. Holiness is the beginning, though. Get this statement. Holiness is the beginning of pure joy pure joy. Now, I know you think those are just words. Perhaps you've tasted of it, but it is. Holiness is coming into a sense of absolute elation, incredible rest of just knowing Jesus is holding me. You know, we don't talk about reward all the time in Maslow's, you know, table and all that, but if we were to look at it from, those, from that vantage point, from a psychological point of view, Obedience is powerful stuff. Powerful stuff to the psyche. When we obey the Lord, the the result, the joy, the sense of, you know, it's it's like what I see in my children 
when they obey me, and I just say, hey, we, you need to do this, and they do it willingly. You can see it on their countenance, just for a time. But just that, 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 that sense of, I did that. It was good. Multiply that times a million when we do that with our Heavenly Father, of what it produces on the inside. See, everybody's all about clamoring to do what we want to do, clamoring to give into our sinful pleasures, the ple- what God says, look, it, and that's why it calls it, you know, and, and sin is pleasurable, or we wouldn't want to be doing it. It is pleasurable, but it's only, sin, it, it's only pleasurable for a moment, and it robs us of that pure elation and joy later. It absolutely does. So let's just turn the table, becoming more like him, yielding to him, saying yes to the ways of God. Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God teaches us to do two things. Yes to him and, the, and godliness and no to worldly passion. He makes it very clear what we're really talking about here. Hard to convince a human being that worldly passion is not what brings you the greatest joy. When you see, I joke with my kids all the time, when you see a, a Hollywood person or an NBA person or a football person after they've experienced all of their years of, of fame and fortune and all that, and they just say, you know, I just wish I could go back to just a simple life and just live. You know, we look at that, but we don't believe them, not one second. We should. We should. But our sinful nature on the inside still clamors to say, yeah, but wouldn't it be nice? Truth is, to say yes to God will bring the greatest amount of peace, pleasure, joy, hope, peace that a human being could ever have in this life. Those are just words. And have I tasted all of that myself? No, I haven't. I wish I had. But there are times when I do. There are times when I do. And when I do, I'm just like, it's kind of like a V8, right? Should have had one. Should have had it sooner. Or, you know, tasting something that you didn't really like, thinking you didn't like it, tasting it. Oh, man, I've gone 55 years without eating this. This is so amazing. Holiness, you know, is absolutely the same way. When you begin to yield to God your life, yield to him your passions, yield to him the complete direction of your life, biting into the kingdom of God. And we're not talking that apple over there, but we're talking the kingdom of God. Biting into that will change your life and will bring you the greatest joys. But, so, well, holiness, again, is pure joy. We get glimpses, a sunset. Follow me on this. A sunset. I, I'm just trying to, trying to uh, set, set of how we could emotionally respond to this. A sunset. A cool breeze. The touch of a loved one. The coo of a baby. Beach sand in your toes. The smell of mountain air. All of these things are free and require no real effort to receive it, just to receive it. It brings us peace and a contentment that may only last for a moment, but it marks us, doesn't it? It marks us. That's why people always want to get back to the beach. That's why I want to get back to that sunset. It's why I want to get back to that cool breeze. That's why you dream about it. It marks you in the same way those moments in the presence of God, those moments when you hear God tell you he loves you and he's for you and you believe it and you know it's true, will mark you. Or when he speaks in your ear and says, I've made you. You are here not by accident. 
You are fearfully and wonderfully made and you have a purpose. And every single day, I'm ready to reveal it to you. And you bite into that, it marks you. It changes you. Every day is an anticipation. It absolutely destroys the thought of depression. What is depression? I mean, I know there's a whole chemical aspect of it, but there's often an emotional uh, 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 condition that leads up to that. And it's usually, you know, consistently loss of hope. And God provides it all. He provides it all. God's holiness brings us to a heavenly perspective where we will feel like this constantly and forever. And I believe that. It just kind of paves the way. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. It will be like that sunset. It will be like that, 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 that superlative joy forever. We get glimpses. We get glimpses. And then finally, why do we uh, stumble? is we shrink in our faith. We should always, of course, believe for more, bigger, and greater. Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus showed us a supernatural lifestyle, didn't he? The the majority of ministry, in all three years, he lived supernaturally almost every single day. The Bible tells us if they they were to take all that Jesus did, it wouldn't, John tells us that. It wouldn't fill all the books. The books couldn't, it could not hold it. It makes you want to wish you could read those books. What more did Jesus do? But a whole lot, apparently. So he showed us a supernatural lifestyle. He assumed that the church would embrace the same. Always assumed it. Always assumed it. That's why he told them to go and do it. So shrinking in our faith, when a great difficulty comes, church, Christian, man, that's no time to to, to bail out on God. It's no time to stop going to church. It's not no time to go get angry at God and angry at your neighbor, angry at, at, at whatever that's got a cross on it. It's not a time to be doing that. It's a time to grow in your faith because God has provided you an opportunity. Don't see difficulties as God getting in your way. See him as God teaching you, preparing you for something better because that's true. I'm not trying to sell you anything, okay? This is true. So we do stumble. He goes on to share with us a very sobering reason not to willfully turn away. Now, buckle in, because this is hard. I thought about skipping this, but I, I really felt the Holy Spirit tell me not to, and I'll tell you why in a moment. A sobering reason not to willfully turn away. The writer says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left for sins but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, again, he's going back to their law to help them understand why that is true. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, sin was death. And they knew that. Verse 29, how much more severely though Do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled on the Son of God underfoot, especially in the light of what we all know about the covenant of grace? Remember, I said that last week. There is absolutely no reason why anyone should go to hell based on what Jesus has done for us. 
and what the covenant of grace is. So the writer is saying here, man, there was death for those who sinned without blood. How much more will those be punished who trample underfoot this wonderful gift that has been offered? Where God does it all. How much more severely? Uh, who has treated, um, trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this writing serves to ferret out. I really believe that the writer put this in here because he's going he's gonna to later, you know, before you, you lose it, because a lot of people, oh, well, did, you know, am I in that place of judgment? Have, have I sinned too much? Have I gone too far? Have I, have I trampled underfoot the son of God and, and the grace and the covenant? Am I, am I, is it all over for me? No. I'll jump to the end. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. So I'll put that in there. So why is that here? I'll tell you why. This is a warning. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 9. It's good for us to hear a warning because it causes us to appreciate what it is that we have. But it also, what I'm getting ready to read here, is it is a warning that serves to ferret out those who are attracted, follow me now, those who are attracted to the love of God but unwilling to receive his grace to change. And do not see his mercy as something that is needed because they don't see their sin as sin. Think of those who did this in the scriptures. The rich young ruler that Jesus pointed out. Herod, the king of the Jews. Judas himself, one of the disciples. And then Simon the sorcerer later. All uh, counterfeits. All those who... In that like, like Judas, all were attracted to the miracles, were all attracted to the, the outward appearance of what was religious. So he's writing this to kind of, to, to be a good test, to test our own hearts. What is your motivation? Are you only attracted to the gospel in, the, in, in all of its array and, and it's, you know, the music and the color and the, the concept of love? Or are you, are you really surrendering to the king of kings? Which is why I think holiness and the fear of it, it's totally natural to fear holiness. But what is our response to that? Is to just humble ourselves again. Lord, I can't do this. This is overwhelming for me. But you died for me. And, 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 and you say that you're the author and the finisher of my, of my faith. And I can come boldly before your throne of grace. So I'm coming. I'm coming before you. So you see that why it's important for us to know that to trample underfoot is a good warning for us. It's a good warning for the church to be able to see because here we have a lot of talk of love in our, in our culture. We have a lot of talk of purity and motive and heart and goodness. All of these words are redefined, but when you really look at the heart of it, it is ugly. And what is good is called evil and what is evil is called good. And what ferrets it out? What is the true litmus test? What do you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus? And now, will you bend the knee to him? Will you surrender to the King of kings, the Lord of lords? Will you say, you are my Lord, 
who I surrender to, and you are my Savior, the one who saves my soul. That's the key. That's the key. Let's finish with this tonight. A hopeful reason to persevere. Because that's what he's saying. Look, hang in there, guys. And so in verse 34, he goes on and he says, look, you've suffered. And he goes on, and I'm not going to read all that for the sake of time. But he says, you've gone through persecution. You, some of you were imprisoned. Some of you had family members who were imprisoned. And you know what you've suffered. And you know what? We have too. I mean, as a church, even now, I mean, you know, it's not as bad as they experienced it, but all over the world it is. I mean, over 365 Christians are martyred every month. Do you believe that? That's scary. Martyred, okay? Not car accidents, not accidents, not, oh, gee whiz, a Christian just died. No, they die for their faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Boom. Dead cut off their heads, shoot them, burn their churches down to the ground. Happens every day, all over the world. So we should be grateful for Memorial Day, should we not? That we as Christians can, at least at this time in history, are still able to enjoy the safety and protection of being able to worship the way we do. Will that last forever? I don't know. But I know that Christians all over the rest of the world are still suffering badly, very badly. So suffering, is there suffering? Absolutely. Do we experience some suffering? Sure we do. Not to that degree. We suffer when we have to say, you know what? I'm going to follow Christ this way. I hit that head on the moment I gave my life to Jesus, right there in the middle of my high school years, I had to decide, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to smoke marijuana. I'm not going to drink with all my buddies. I'm going to live a different life. I immediately caught flack for that. I, got, I, I was driving to the parking lot of my high school my senior year, and I could hear him shouting, Jesus freak. You know, the choices that I had to make, I endured persecution. And when we do, when we stand up for Christ, it's going to do that. We're going to suffer some measure. But he says, in the midst of that suffering, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded in this life and in the one to come, of course. So he's, he's encouraging them. Look, hang in there. I know you have suffered. And it's been some of this suffering. It's been some of this confusion. It's been some of this loss of hope that it's the reason why you are wavering in your faith. Some of you are embittered. Some of you are struggling. That's why you're wavering. But hang in there. Do not let go of the hope that is yours. Because in due time, you will be richly rewarded. Both on the inside of that wonderful peace that holiness brings, but on the outside in ways that God will supernaturally come into your life. You need to, verse 36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by my, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure, pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. That's who we are. And I love the fact that he ends it with all that because he, he stirs it all up. The writer stirs it all up to say, you know, some of you have been stumbling because of this, that, and the other thing. Some of you have been struggling, struggling because you've suffered. He says, but hang in there. Persevere. And here's the cool thing about perseverance is it's provided for. 
it is provided for. The perseverance of the saints is something that is a benefit of the cross. It is a work of grace. But we have to, as anything, it's faith, isn't it? Isn't faith the key to everything that is spiritual in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Of course, we're heading to that here in the next chapter or two. We'll wrap this up with what he says is the key to it all. But I'll just introduce it here. Is faith. All of this requires faith. Belief in Christ's power to change me, to empower me, to unveil his purpose for me daily. The problem with this group of Jewish Christians is that they have become distracted. They have found other things to occupy their hearts. Sound familiar? They stopped meeting together with other believers regularly and have lost their ability to believe God for life-changing opportunity interruptions that they absolutely need. In verses 24 and 25, he tells us what the solution is. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some in the habit are doing, but encouraging one another in all the more as we see the day approaching. So what do we need to do? How, what, what, is the, what is the real solution to all this? Of course, it is to believe God, but it's also to draw near to one another. Folks, we need one another. That's why the church is the church. And so all of these things, these, what happened to these group of men is they began to, to, to lose sight of what it was. It was they, lose, they lost sight of Jesus. They, saw, they lost sight of what Jesus has done. And then they lost sight of one another. And that can happen. We need each other. I need to be able to challenge you. You need to be able to challenge me. We need to be able to tell one another that it's going to be all right, that I love you, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to stand with you. Sometimes just, I mean, I know you've been there. Sometimes you just need somebody there, don't you? It's like, look, I don't need you to say anything right now. I just need you to be here. You don't even need to hold my hand. I just don't want to be alone. I don't want to walk through this alone. And so coming to church to give up on the fellowship of the Spirit, but the fellowship with one another, it's so critical. It's not just going to church. It is being the church. It is walking in where there is an incredible amount of grace awakening, uh, awaiting people in the fellowship, in the presence of God. We're not just singing songs here. We're coming into the presence of God and saying, Lord, you know where I am. I'm a little discouraged right now, but Lord, I'm coming boldly before you, throne, boldly before you throne of grace right now. And you know, another way, we can't, we're all facing the same direction, but to really make this happen, folks, we need to get into these small groups. You see out there that we've just, <laughs> we just made that whole wall about that, haven't we? We are a small group church. Why? Because we're just into small groups? No, because we know that's where you're really going to get ministered to. That is where you're really going to walk in discipleship. That's where you're going to develop lifelong connections with people that are going to pray for you, love you, even with all your brokenness and all your stuff. I mean, it takes faith, doesn't it? It takes obedience, doesn't it? We've got to sign up. You need to go back there and sign up for one if you've never been through one. I know maybe you're an introvert. I am one too. Go figure. But the truth is, all the change I've ever experienced in my life has come through connections with other people who loved me and were for me and stood with me. That's where it happened. Every bit of it. Now, now am I saying that it, it, it happened on that uh, vertical plane too? Yes. But usually what it does is God causes me to submit, breaks me, I submit to him, but then he says, now go submit to your brother. Go. Because that's where I'm going to work that out. 
See? So let's spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We're going to do a couple of those things. Friday, we're going to give out Cokes and, and, and Sprites. You know, doing that kind of stuff alone is kind of lonely and scary. But doing it together is a blast. It really is. To see what God can do. And we do it together. All right? And then signing up for small groups. Go to that table where Meredith is. Sign up for a small group. Get in one. If you've never done one, you need to do one. All right? Find them. Find one that works for you. So to finish tonight, folks, let me just say that I want to pray for you.